Welcome, everyone, to Potholes and Politics, local main issues from A to Z. I'm your co-host, Rebecca Graham, here breaking down this week in Augusta with Rebecca Lambert. Becky, tell me about your uh, VLA bills this week. Well, that marathon public hearing session kicked off with LD34, which is sponsored by Senator Pouliot. And he, this bill comes around, I guess, every year or has for the past several years. And it's to require a photo ID to get your ballot at the polls. Basically, simply put, this is going to hopefully increase security and integrity in our election process. However, the Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows, is in opposition to this. They have done, and she described in her testimony, she did a lot of work. Her and her staff did a lot of work trying to narrow down how many voters are in Maine. And of those voters who had an ID, like a driver's license or a state ID registered to them and who did not. And they found that 103,000 approximately out of approximately 109, excuse me, 934,000 voters So 103,000 of those voters did not have a driver's license or some sort of state ID credential, but they have no way of knowing whether they have a a federal ID or a passport or something of the like. So they are against this bill. Secretary of State's office is in opposition to the bill. Yes, as is the ACLU. They both have said they think this is looking a solution that's looking for a problem. And people such as representatives from the transgender network uh, identified that some people don't identify as the same gender as those on their identification. So that can also cause issues, as well as people with disabilities who may not have a driver's license or just don't have a state ID because they have no need for one in their everyday life. The access for them to get that ID is sometimes a barrier. Yeah, I don't I don't know what your... (laughs) your license picture looks like that both my passport and my license picture are atrocious (laughs) and they're always atrocious they're always those worst things so you know i can't imagine the extra work that that would add on the day and its proportion to the risk that it is perceived my license picture is actually really good my passport picture however is atrocious and i'm afraid that if i try to go into another country i will not be let in (laughs) (laughs) no they'll let you in <laughs> they always look twice at mine, though. Definitely doesn't. <laughs> Definitely doesn't look like me anymore. But that's okay. I'm stuck with it for ten years, so <laughs> it is what it is. I can't even imagine being a clerk trying to make that assumption. I know that you, you have to go through a, extra training as a bartender to be able to protect your license and make sure that you're not letting underage folks in. And that always causes a lot of contention when you deny somebody the right to enter a facility. So I can't even imagine what position that would put our clerks in if they were turning folks away. It would seem like this would also require a really robust way to ensure that that person within the time period of the voting either had an opportunity to challenge that or some sort of appeals process based upon the decision that someone had made and that requires another whole stream of systems that, you know, again, aren't proportional to the anticipated threat. But I, you know, I understand that there's a perception issue and I can understand why that would solve the perception issue. But we're having a hard time getting folks now. And I don't know that we should make those duties harder for them without a really good reason. True. 
The clerks were neither for nor against that bill, and as was MMA, uh, and they did testify that to to what you just spoke of. And also, you know, at this point, it just seems like they should just pass it just to get rid of the misconception that there's, you know, fraud within our voting system. Yeah, I, I remember from the convention and looking at it and talking about election security that Patty Dubois had made the brilliant comment that she has to enforce the laws, even the dumb ones. And that is certainly it's a very laborious process already administratively for those folks. And this will add to that. But I know that those clerks will will do whatever is necessary and whatever the legislature directs them to in order to meet their obligation and their duty. This bill that came up um, at that committee was the bill LD 237. And this bill would require a voter to update their voter registration every four years. And the Secretary of State is opposed to this, as is the Attorney General and the ACLU. MMA is also opposed to this, just because it doesn't seem like there's a reason for it. It's just solving a problem that doesn't even exist. So this was the uh, comment by our LPC member that it was akin to a self-licking ice cream cone. I mean, who doesn't want to lick ice cream themselves? Yeah, absolutely. That that was that was a hilarious comment. I remember that. And I'm really glad that you worked that into the bulletin article because it gave me a good chuckle this morning when we were doing the editing. I probably sounded like a fool to the guy that was delivering propane, just sitting in here laughing by, laughing by myself. But um yeah, that is an entirely new administrative process. It's not even an added duty on an existing administrative process for for clerks. To what end? Right. Did you have any other election-related bills? Wasn't there something about uh, self-licking stamps? LD twenty six. LD twenty six. Strike that. Woo! <laughs> 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 okay. She's like la 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 la. Well, they gonna look at that. Oh goodness. Okay. Woo. So yeah, LD26, that was about sending postage paid return envelopes with absentee ballots. And there was a concern amongst the clerks that um, it would actually extend to local elections as well and put that financial burden onto the municipalities. But uh, the secretary of state, when she testified, she she made sure, made clear that these prepaid envelopes, she had a meeting with the postal service. And the way that it would work is that the the envelopes would be printed and they would not be charged until they were, when their absentee ballot was sent back. So when it was entered into the postal service and activated within the service as they returned their ba- their absentee ballot, that's when the postage would be charged. So the waste of postage, that was also a concern among the clerks and MMA. That that fear was quelled at that time when when she mentioned that in her testimony. Of course, it's the towns that have to mail those ballots out, so they're paying the front end postage as well. Very right? true. So, yeah. So the so the state would be picking up the return, but it's the municipality that's footing the bill for the sending. Interesting. Did you get any sense? Don't they do that? Anymore? They do. Yeah, they do that. They send it out currently. But the municipalities are the ones that are paying for that postage to that resident. And then, you know, there's drop boxes 
at the, the lock drop boxes that are outside uh, city halls and town halls in some locations. And then you can also drop it off. Uh, so folks either do that or they mail it back. Did you get any um, sense from any of the sponsors or were there any other legislators that showed up to testify in any of those hearings? A, a majority of the testimony focused around the Secretary of State. She was in the hot seat on all three of those bills for a long time, but it was actually really good because she she had done a lot of legwork on the postage return envelopes on that, um, on some of the details of that. So she was able to prov- provide a lot of information to to those that were there listening and to, mm. who were also testifying on those bills. Um, other than the sponsor, uh, there was there were no other legislators that that spoke on behalf of these bills. So were you in the room the whole day? I was on Zoom all day. Well, there is that. So hopefully you had comfy seats. Yes, I did have a comfy seat (laughs) in my home. (laughs) But it is a long day. It it is. It is. Can can be a really long day, as we found out yesterday (laughs) in SLG. I was kind of across the hall from VLA on Wednesday, though. I was in... Uh, criminal justice and public safety, they held a work session on the bill that would enable the disclosure of background investigations on current employees who have applied to another agency. During ah, how did that one go? Yeah, during so currently, and it's a bit if an officer applies to another agency, it, there's a full background check that is run again at that point in time. And often it's policy that if you haven't had polygraph within a year, that you're re-polygraphed as well. So during that process, there have been a couple of instances where criminal behavior has been disclosed either during the polygraph or it's been discovered as a, as a result of a background check on an officer. But in order for that agency to release that information back to their current employer, you need to have that employee sign another waiver. So initially you sign a waiver to say that your employer needs to release all your employment history and disciplinary records to the candidate agency. And in order to release any information that you get back, because information that's obtained during a hiring process is generally very confidential in every business. It's uh, federal law. And in order for that to be disclosed back to that that hiring that that agency where that individual is employed, they need to sign a waiver to say yes. Here, find I I give you authority to know that it's been disclosed that I might have done something that would be disqualifying of my current job. I think generally there has just been you know kind of conversations like I think you need to have a conversation with them back and forth and let that agency you know basically figure it out. Go and do that. Go and do another mm-hmm. whole investigation and figure it out. There's probably not much resistance to signing that waiver, but it's an odd situation to put someone in, and it's a it's kind of an odd situation because that information. If you're a, if you're a head of a law enforcement agency and you know that an individual has committed a crime who is a current law enforcement officer in violation of their certification, you have to report that to the academy. But the academy can't tell anybody anything without that employee signing a waiver. <laughs> so it's kind of like this really weird catch-22. Like we want to 
and and this is so rare that's that's the other thing it's like so rare that uh, uh it hasn't needed a special a special process until recently when it had happened and then you realize that you're in this really weird situation that you can't disclose <laughs> without being in violation of some federal law it's something that obviously should be disclosed absolutely yeah so so the bill basically was amended. We submitted some additional language that would also prevent that hiring agency from being, you know, pulled into an adverse employment action as a result of disclosing that information to that head of the agency. So, you know, now there will, there'll be a, a dual reporting path. So you have to report that to the academy, but you also can report that directly to the head of the agency where that person is employed. So there's not this middle loop of no information other than, oh, there's a problem, figure it out so that you have to go and redo everything that someone else has already done and could have. And a single waiver. So the single waiver uses the one that exists when you waive your rights to privacy to your current employment records and and allow them to be released to the agency that you potentially want to work for. That will also include a waiver back that if anything in the background check is discovered uh, to either have probable cause to believe that criminal activity has occurred or confirmation that criminal activity has occurred, either because you disclose it yourself or because they find a record maybe in an alternate state or something, that that will go back to your current employer. You know, the committee asked a lot of good questions around that, and they were concerned that 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 information should be direct from the head of the agency to the other head of the agency, not just from, you know, the investigating person that's doing the background checks. It's usually not the chief. It's usually assigned to, you know, someone else. And and it's probably good to clarify that that this also applies to corrections officers. And so it makes that communication head to head. And then it also, that also gives them an opportunity to review the work that was done to figure out, you know, if, if there's a concurrence there that the chief believes that that conclusion was merited before it gets disclosed to the other head. And then, then it's up to that agency to do the background investigation and to follow their own procedures around the hiring and uh, adverse employment action. But that agency that reported that would not get involved in that. They didn't hire that person. They shouldn't be involved in that. They just found out information and are just sharing it. Sounds like clear procedures and communication would go a long way into helping this. Yeah. And it's one of those things that is so rare that you didn't realize that there was a problem until you were put into that situation. And then you realize that that feeder chain or that information sharing chain is non-functional. So that's, that's a testament to both how rare it is. Um, and that's also important. It's an important information that we would want to know about regardless of how rare it is. And the committee members were also concerned that this might deter uh, someone from applying for another agency or applying for another job. And, you know, I think it's pretty fair to say that the only person that's going to be deterred by that disclosure is someone that you wouldn't want working anyway, that is going mm. to deter passing around bad cops. And the the hope and the direction is that Background checks are done on everybody, regardless of whether or not you're a current law enforcement officer or you are a new person who would like to get into law enforcement. The background checks are the same. It, there shouldn't be an assumption just because someone is employed that 
they are not in need of that background check. They most definitely are. And I think that that's something that's widely recognized now. And this is a step that that I think will help stop passing around folks that um, might leave their agency just before they get into trouble. I feel like when there's someone, whether it be a bad person or a bad review, that tends to spread around a lot quicker. You know, the, the details of that spread around a lot quicker than if somebody has a good experience. Is that the same with law enforcement? Like, would those rumors pass through if there's a bad cop among them? Yeah. So it, the problem is that rumors do spread. And it's and it's not rumors. These are people's careers that you're talking about. So the the reporting information isn't rumors. It is highly suspected or confirmed criminal behavior because that can potentially end someone's career, take their certification away. It's not something that should be taken lightly. It's also not something that should be tolerated. But it's important that there are those due process considerations around that. If you think about all the jobs that you've had and having supervisors who might be a little bit of a jerk and write you up for, you know, things they wouldn't write someone else up for or, you know, just being unfair. That's not the kind of thing that's that's being included or or disclosed or other than you know if those exist within your current record which you have a right of reply to as well it's really about significant disqualifying behavior so that you shouldn't have your certificate as well we don't want that to be by rumor we want that to be to have a process Kate had a really contentious week, I believe, in taxation. Uh, some of the the public hearings that she has to participate in, I can't even imagine how infuriating they must be. It strikes me as odd, some of the conclusions that came out of her uh, excess revenue LD101 discussion, which was an act to return the former owner any excess funds remaining after the sale of foreclosed property. So during that hearing, the sponsor felt like municipalities should be returning any excess revenue that they receive after a tax foreclosed property is sold. And then that should be returned to the owner who hasn't taken any steps to respond to the municipality previously. Some of the comments from the Realtors Guild and some of the committee members, unsurprisingly, were about how mortgage companies have to return that that excess revenue. So municipalities should be treated the same as mortgage companies. Forgetting that municipalities are government, they're not in it for a profit motive. There is no profit motive. And mortgage companies certainly don't spend three years trying to get you to apply for tax abatements, trying to get you into tax programs or even payment plans. No mortgages company is going to do that. So it's like apples and oranges to compare the two. And there is zero profit motive for municipalities. There is a need for them to turn those properties over to somebody who's going to fix them up. Usually they are near derelict. This is not an entity for houses that are in good nick as they would say, are in good condition. Right. This is a this is a group of houses that are often non-habitable and have sat for three years, probably even uh, suffered a lot of you know neglect in that interim as well that would even further exacerbate that reality. And they drag the property values down 
on the properties that are around them because of that condition all the t- all the while they're not paying their taxes so that's also being shifted onto their neighbors so their neighbors are either having to fill in that gap for that property tax revenue that hasn't been received either by increased mill rates or they're going to you know their services are cut all while the municipality is trying to connect with this owner who's often non-responsive and uh, get them into some sort of payment program. So the comparison's absurd. Absolutely. Absolutely. As as someone who has placed liens on homes for unpaid sewer bills, the process is lengthy and you have there's so many hoops to jump through and then oftentimes what would happen is we would place the lien, we would wait the 18 months, we would go to foreclose on the property and the day before the property would become the the districts it would the person would come in and they would pay it all off and all the fees associated with it but that doesn't take away all the work that was put into placing that lien and trying to connect with them and making payment arrangements and having them be broken and having you know their water shut off and you know having a staff person go out there to shut it off and it, there was so much that went into it and it's it's not just off the cuff, someone saying, well, you know, we're going to take this property because that's going to make the town some money or the district some money. No one wants to take someone's home. It's it's not a pleasant job. Yeah. Unless you're a mortgage company who has been hit with federal cases for doing so improperly in the tune of mountains. <laughs> But uh, yeah, municipal government is government, and it's the same type of collection activity that the state government has for sales and income tax collection. They're the same mechanisms. So, so I'm sure that that was a, a difficult public hearing for Kate to sit through and not be red faced and and angry at the absurdity of the comparison or. The belief that municipalities are like dumping millionaire properties for pennies on the dollar. Yeah, I I guarantee that those million dollar properties pay their taxes. Yeah, if they can get the tax revenue back out of that, I think that's you know that's often the the bigger concern is at least getting that back, getting it back in, and getting the property back onto the the tax rolls so that it isn't shifting that burden onto the neighbors. And then of course the redevelopment of that property by the new owner which would then assist that neighborhood in not being blighted. So this week I also sat in on a work session for the two bills that provide funding for climate service work and rural programming. Um, oh yeah. LD 14143. Those uh, both came out of committee with a divided report ought to pass as amended, which the amendment was the the fiscal note for those bills and the minority reports were both ought not to pass. So we shall see where those go. Yeah, well, then they got to survive the appropriations table as well. I know when I talked to Representative Riley about his sense on if these would be funded, he was cautiously optimistic, but he seems like he's very optimistic. I think that's his natural state of being, which makes him a joy to work with as well. Yeah. Uh, Looks like the 15th, we've got work sessions on the election bills. Oh, February 15th. 
So as we close out this podcast today, Becky, um, we are welcoming a new junior hose dragger into the MMA fold as our beloved firefighter Nick Kimball and his beautiful wife Julia have just had their baby boy this morning. Yay. Yay. Congratulations to Nick and Julia. Amazing. We love babies and I can't wait to meet this new little angel. I can't either. And I want to get his screech on the podcast because I'm sure he's going to be a massive metalhead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we are then, Becky, from self-licking ice cream cones to questionable tax acquired property procedures. That was this week in Augusta. Next week, we get to hang out and eat brownies with our legislative policy committee. That sounds like a lot more fun. It does. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll get some some great tidbits to use in next week's bulletin and in our testimony. Yeah, we definitely have our work cut out for us um, of the bills that have been printed that we've deemed that have potential municipal impact. Like 82 of them are concept drafts and have no language. So there's no way for the LPC to take positions on those bills. We're just going to have to keep watching them. But I think we got 36 of them for the LPC too. Um, as of today, Monday and Tuesday, that will grow significantly. And uh, so, yes, if you are listening and you're an LPC member, be sure to, you know, read the bills that we've got coming up for you to weigh in on and come up with some catchy things for us to say don't forget as well to like us and subscribe and share us with all of your other government geeks because i'm sure that this particular podcast session was quite riveting (laughs) Uh, the word train wreck comes to mind (laughs) no i'm thinking maybe we should do this on thursday before we're not like at the end of the week and all completely dead. All right. We'll see ya. Let me know if you need any help with anything. Likewise. Have a fabulous weekend and catch you next week. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye.